is tied up, and he asked us to go ahead and, and uh, resume. This is our second week in the study of Jonah, and um, I know I was blessed last week to be here. Uh, Pastor Dave commented from the pulpit that he was inspired, and I'm sure it'll be none, nonetheless uh, this morning. So as we begin, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we pause to give you our praise and glory that you so richly deserve. We recall that all things good are created for you, by you. We come with the confusion of the busyness of our weeks to have our minds opened and renewed. We recall that even those closest to you spoke to the master and said these teachings are difficult and so we can only ask that you open our minds and through your holy spirit give us understanding and we know that we are blessed to have a wonderful teacher with us today we ask that you continue to inspire him that our questions be appropriate to inspire him but more so that your holy spirit fill him with what you want us to know we ask these things in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> uh, before we begin, uh, last class, I, I, there's so much to cover in one, in, in any verse. Oh, how's that? Is that better? How's that? Okay. So, in every verse of the Bible, really, there's so much to talk about that I felt that I kind of rushed through chapter one. So what I like to do is pause, because chapter two is a lot shorter, and, and pause to, to, to solicit questions from last class. So if, if there were questions or comments or thoughts that you had uh, during chapter one of Jonah, uh, pl please ask or share your thoughts with us today. Uh, and, and Chapter two, we can cover chapter two in one class. I've done that before. Chapter one usually takes, in, in, uh, in my uh, higher education classes, uh, three or four lessons. So we'll slow down just a little bit and see if anyone had any questions or comments about the last. Uh, and also, I apologize, uh, last class, I missed things. Uh, there are so many great things to talk about. And I, I brought my notes, but I didn't go to them. And there were some key things that I wanted to talk about that I missed, a couple of things that I missed. Uh, and also, Dan, Dan suggested I show you my Bible. Um, when I was reading, I was hesitating sometimes. It's because I'm reading, actually, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so that's why I was, I'm translating as I go. So uh, that's why I was hesitating and looking things up. So I apologize if I'm kind of stuttering through some passages. Uh, but I'll, I missed some things, so I want to talk about those things too. But before I do that, uh, did you have any questions or comments from last class? I, I historically didn't have anything historic about the lots. And was that a way that commonly they would decide if they were facing something uh, to draw lots? I Right. Uh, the question is about casting of lots. Is that, is that something that was commonly done? Uh, you, you find casting of lots in virtually every ancient Near Eastern culture. So whether you go from Mesopotamia all the way to, to Egypt, people cast lots. And the word cast is to throw or cause to fall. 
nafal is to fall down, and hifil of nafal is to cause to fall. And what's happening, uh, this is, these are all guesses, by the way, because we don't actually have artifacts of what lots look like. But the guesses are that there were stones of some kind, or objects with, with, with one uh, distinctiveness. So if they're all white stones, one's black, or if they're all black stones, one's white. And so they would throw these things, and if the unique piece landed on something or someone, in, th in this case it was, it was Jonah, uh, th that's how they divined uh, certain things. Now, there's, a, there's an idea, it's like, how does that work? How does, how does the casting of lots actually work on this, in this case with Jonah? How did the, the thing, the unique one, let's say it's the black stone among white stones. How did that black one fall on Jonah is the bigger question in my mind. Right, do lots actually work? Because remember, um, the disciples do this. Do you remember this in the New Testament? Because uh, they they're down to 11, and they want a, a 12th one. And so because of the choices that they had, I mean, casting of lots was a, a custom. And uh, the best answer I've heard from different scholars, uh, one is this, that God accommodates our cultural practices. That God doesn't necessarily change everything about how we do things, but uses them uh, in a way that we don't always expect. So for example, uh, the Old Testament has sacrifices, many, many sacrifices, sacrificial systems, uh, you know, offering of lambs and grain and wine. And, and that was not a new invention. That was not a new practice imposed upon the Israelites. That was a common practice in the ancient Near World. Uh, so they, they were... Uh, already doing that as a practice of worshiping a God. And so God says through Leviticus and through Moses, no, no, you're gonna keep practicing that. Here's some changes, and this is what it means now. So I think the casting of lots, which was a very common custom and practice, God uses sometimes. So that's the, uh, yes sir. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, it's a short straw. Right, <laughs> the short straw. Uh huh. Uh, the other thing I, I think of of casting lights, I've, uh, I I don't recommend this, <coughs> but I've had students tell me that this works. Uh, when they're trying to th decide on something or praying about something, uh, they will do a random Bible point and look at a verse and go, "Oh, it says yes." <laughs> <laughs> the word, uh, so that I think of that as ca almost casting of lots, and, I, and I've I've seen when you know when students share their stories about how that has changed their life, I've seen that God can even use that. Uh, I think it's somewhat silly to do, but a lot of silly things that we do, God can use uh, for God's glory. So, other questions about Jonah? Yes, sir. Oh. Oh. But Paul wasn't running away, and Paul was trying to give him confidence. And sure. Yeah. Did I mention last class about the correlation between what the disciples experience uh, when there's a storm in the Sea of, sea of Galilee? Uh, there are some parallels. But the New Testament gospel writers use the Old Testament brilliantly. So for example, when Matthew describes Jesus' 40 days uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the desert fasting, 
Matthew borrows directly from Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy, the description of the 40 years of, of wandering. Uh, Matthew borrows word for word from the Greek translation of that text to talk about Jesus. Just kind of transposes some of these words that you find to describe one narrative in light of another narrative. And you see that going on uh, when the disciples are in the boat and there is this great storm and Jesus is asleep, uh, much like Jonah. And, but then when Jesus wakes, unlike Jonah, uh, Jesus rebukes the wind and the storm, and the storm quiets down, right? And do you remember the response of the disciples at that point? They're astonished. They're shocked. And, and then they say, what kind of a man is this? And the answer is, God kind of a man, right? Uh, so, that kind of fear that they experience at all and wonder is what the sailors experience when they finally throw Jonah overboard and the sea calms for them. Because I doubt they really thought that this was going to work. One man goes down. Whew. And then the description there is the men feared a great fear. Remember the word gadol? I taught you one Hebrew word, a two, I think, kara, kara, and gadol. Gadol means great. So they yara, they fear, a gadol fear, a great fear. And that's the same response of the disciples. It's interesting the parallels uh, that the gospel writers use of Jonah. And, and it makes sense, because even Jesus refers to the book of Jonah. I will give you the sign of Jonah. It's an amazing uh, parallel, by the way. When we get to chapter four and we discover what the actual message of the book is, what Jesus is saying is, is kind of like this. I will give you the sign of the redemptive work of God. It isn't just three days, although that's there too. Three days and three nights is how um, Jonah is described as being in the belly of the fish. Three days, three nights. Well, Jesus wasn't really literally in the tomb for three days, three full days and three full nights, right? So if you go from Sabbath uh, to, to Sunday, from Friday night to Saturday, Sunday morning, you don't have three full days. And yet the gospel writers consistently refer to that as three days and three nights. Huh, why is that? It's again, kind of a reference to, to Jonah. The other thing I wanted to mention in chapter one was when the men pray and say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna try this. We're gonna throw this man overboard. And that means certain death in the Mediterranean Sea when the storm is going on to man th you know, throw a man overboard. Please do not put this, this innocent blood on us. Dam naki is the Hebrew word there, Hebrew phrase. And that innocent blood, that phrase in Hebrew comes from the Noahic covenant. When God makes a covenant with Noah, the, the stipulation is that all creation, and, and the Noah covenant, when God makes a covenant with Noah, the language is just universal. Every living creature, and the sons of Noah, and everybody below them, right? All, all humanity. We're under the Noah covenant. And the only stipulation is do not shed innocent blood, because we are made in the image of God. And that's fascinating because. Uh, some theologians will talk about how the fall description uh, in chapter three really is telling us that our image of God has been marred. 
It's been darkened. Um, well, not according to Genesis 8 and 9. We're still the full image bearers of God, and that's why we don't shed innocent blood. We don't kill innocent people because they bear the image of God. So this is this, Jonah's reference to, 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 to Dom Naki, the innocent blood, is a reference to that. And when you think, okay, the pagan sailors are not under the Mosaic covenant. They don't have to follow the Mosaic law. But they are part of the all creation. So in a sense, uh, the narrator, the author, the storyteller is telling us, you know these pagans? They know things. They know that they should not shed innocent blood. They're actually operating under the, the Noe covenant. And it seems to me that even today, uh, people who don't believe in God, atheists, strong, anti-Christian atheists even, uh, when you talk about innocent people suffering, they get upset. I think it's because that Dom Naki, the innocent blood, the Noe covenant is still operational. Other thoughts or questions on chapter one? All right, then, um, let's get to chapter two, then. And please, feel free to interrupt me anytime. I forgot to uh, solicit that last time. In my, in my teaching, in my class, I usually tell my students, I love interruptions because it means you're engaged. <laughs> you're, you're paying attention. But if you're not ever interrupting me, then you're either tuned out or you don't care what I'm saying. Or being really polite. Uh, and, and polite is, is overrated. <laughs> uh, actually, in my family over dinner, we have to like talk over each other, <laughs> otherwise you won't ever get a word in. Um, so we grew up that way. Uh, interruption is love. Okay, uh, so the versification for chapter two for Hebrew and English are different. So this is the one part where I have to have some sort of note to keep me uh, lined up here. Um, chapter 2, 1 in Hebrew, in other words, the break that the Masoretes, the Hebrew people, uh, the Jewish people, when they broke the chapter into four, and, and, and that was done, um, there are two traditions of versification. So when the Old Testament was first translated into Greek, that Greek translation is called a Septuagint. And, uh, and this was done before Christ, because Jewish people were forgetting Hebrew, but they were reading and speaking Greek. So they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, and that's called a Septuagint. And the Septuagint had a, a way of dividing things. Um, and then the, the rabbinic writings started dividing things differently. So there are two different versifications. So my chapter 2, 1 begins, and the Lord appointed a great fish. And I, let's see. And that's the end of chapter 1 for you, right? For English? So in other words, the, the Hebrew writers, the Hebrew traditional scribes were saying, this, this begins a new story, a new, new scene. Where is the new, because there are four distinct scenes in the book of Jonah, aren't there? There's a scene uh, on the ship. There's a scene in the belly of the fish. There's the third scene in the, in the city of Nineveh. Uh, and then the fourth scene, it's just outside Nineveh between God and Jonah. There are four distinct scenes. And so it most uh, would see that very clear structure. But then where does the second scene begin? And there's the dis dis kind of difference be between the Greek thinkers and the Hebrew thinkers. 
Uh, Greek thinkers thought that, and the English Bible follows the Greek translation, and because the Greek and the goes to the Latin, the, what's called the Vulgate, and the Latin goes to English eventually. So the versifications you're, you're, you've got in your English Bibles are following the Greek and the Latin. They're saying, no, this Lord appointed a great fish. It's part of the previous story. And the Hebrew people, no, 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 that's the new beginning. So I'm gonna start there again. Uh, so if you're looking at your English Bibles, you're looking at one, uh, 17? 17. Right. I don't have a 17. <laughs> it goes from 16 and then goes to 2 1. So the Lord appointed a great fish. Uh, the Hebrew word there is mana. Mana is an interesting word because vayyama'an Adonai dog gadol. Great fish. So God appoints a fish. The mana is interesting because it's not speak, it's not command. It's literally like a point, like when you appoint someone to a position or when you make an appointment. You're setting something, and, and this is different from when God speaks to, to his prophets, when God speaks to Jonah. The word is amar, speak. But here you got mana. Strange. How do you appoint a fish? <laughs> to what? What position? To do so, there's a strange word. You don't, you don't appoint fish no, normally. You appoint kings. You, God can appoint kings. God can appoint prophets. Um, but here, God appoints a fish. And what does this fish do? Obeys, right? Swallows the fish. I mean, swallows Jonah up. Uh, since I'm teaching you some Hebrew, here's a here's a cool word. The the word for swallow there is. Uh, I'm going to pronounce it with all of the gusto of the letter ayin. There are two guttural stops in Hebrew. One's called an aleph, and the other one's called an ayin. Ayin is pronounced, uh, one grammatical book uh, refers to this letter as, uh, as a pronunciation guide, the sound of vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not ayin, it's oyin. You hear that? Oh. <laughs> So the, the word there to swallow is It's not a monopia. It's a word that sounds like itself, right? Sounds like the meaning. Uh, and so this uh, is the sound. So this, this great fish swallows up Jonah. And, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish. The word belly there is a. Uh, it's not beten. It's not in the womb. It's in the stomach, because Hebrew has two words for belly. One's womb, beten, womb of the fish. But belly, this, this is, uh, it's, it's important, because Jonah's gonna use this word in a minute in the, in the song. And this is why I think the Hebrew people thought, oh, here's a word that connects the song to the, narr to, to the narration of, it, of this song. And so I think that's why they started this unit with this word. In the belly of the fish, in uh, three days and three nights. I've already talked about that. So now, in, in you're in chapter two, right? Uh, yes, chapter two. Uh, and Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God. Uh, you will see Lord in all caps. I think I've said this before, but Lord in all caps is actually these four letters. In Hebrew, it looks like this. 
It reads from right to left in Hebrew. And this is called a tetragrammaton. Because tetra means four. Four letters. And uh, the Hebrew people, whenever they saw this word in the Bible, they said, you know what? We're not supposed to take the Lord's name because this is the Lord's name in vain. So if we never say it, we can't violate that law, can we? So let's never use that word. So whenever they saw these four letters, uh, they, they substituted it with this word. Adonai means Lord. So what the scribes did was they put vowels around the consonantal text. Hebrew was first written as a consonant-only text. Uh, so for example, What does it say? City of Ken. How do you know that? You just do, because you know English well enough that if I took the vowels out, you can still read it. Uh, of course, this one has a vowel, but English, Hebrew has an initial vowel. Remember the Aleph and Ayin? So uh, vowel beginnings would have had a letter. And then what they started to do was they took this ancient manuscripts and uh, the, the Masoretes in around about 900 AD, they decided, well, you can't read Hebrew anymore because you're starting to forget Hebrew. Uh, I'm going to teach you how to read Hebrew and they're going to put vowels in it, but they don't want to mess with the manuscript themselves. So instead of expanding and rewriting them, they took the manuscripts and put the vowels around them. So they look like little dots and little lines around the letters. So it would be almost like putting a dot saying that's an I, uh, that's an A. Those are actually, those, th those are, these are Hebrew vowels. So that would be city of Ken and then uh, Shiva, Canton. So that's what they did. But for this one, since you're not ever going to say Yahweh, you're going to say Adonai, uh, they put the vowels for Adonai. So if you ever heard the word Jehovah, what's that, what, this is a conflation of two words. This is a misunderstanding of what's called the Khatif Kare. You have Adonai, so you have the, the, the verbs, um, the vowels for Adonai. But you have the letters Yahweh. So, but if you mix the two, see these the vowels? You'd get Yahovai. So Jehovah or Jehovah is a misnomer, it's an error. So if you ever heard Jehovah as a name of God, it's now become a thing where you can say it because everybody understands what it means. But it's a, it's a, it's a mistake. It's a mistake of, of not understanding Hebrew and how the vowels worked. So anyway, when you, when, because they said Lord, uh, English traditions have followed that and said, well, okay, we're going to say Lord whenever we see this, but we d there's a Hebrew word Adonai. We don't want to confuse the two, so we'll do it in all caps. So when you see that, that's the name of God. So when it says Yahweh is God, it's distinguishing other gods by name. So uh, I use this example. My name is TC. I have my students call me TC. They don't call me Dr. Hom or Professor Hom. I prefer TC. And my students 
like that for the most part. Some can't get over it. <laughs> they're so polite, like I said. Uh, and, and their politeness, they can't, and they can't overcome uh, the barrier. Uh, and then I remind them, Jesus said, don't call anybody rabbi. Don't be called rabbi, right, to his disciples. Rabbi means teacher. Doctor means teacher. You're calling me rabbi. We're Christians, don't do that. Uh, <clears throat> and they're like, what? But we call all the other people doctor. That's okay, it's not me. Uh, anyway, I, this, the, the example I use is this. T sees my name, and it's a very intimate name. It's not like Professor Hum, which kind of is distancing. Elohim is a title, means God. In fact, im ending is a, a majestic plural, and it's like saying a majestic, powerful, glorious, transcendent God. Elohim. Yahweh was a covenant name. It's an intimate name. Uh, so TC is, is an intimate name that my friends use, my wife uses. So if you call me TC, that's great. But sometimes you might want to say, you know, TC, my professor said. Why would you ever do that? Because in, in, sometimes they want to share what I said to other students and other people, their family. And they want to give some authority and, and, and you know, credibility to me, what they've heard. So instead of just saying, oh, TC said, so who is this TC guy? Their parents don't know. But if they said, TC, my professor told us. It elevates what they're about to say. So Yahweh, his Elohim, his God. So he's the author is recognizing, okay, the pagans just had this conversion experience, right? It's like they sacrificed, they made vows. Now this Jonah is going to pray to this Yahweh, uh, his God. Here's a question for you though. I got a question for you today. How did he pray in the belly of the fish? <laughs> Let's imagine that the belly of the fish is just this cavernous thing like Pinocchio experiences, right? By the way, little kids confuse Pinocchio and Jonah all the time. Uh, it's a cavernous thing that you've got air to breathe and, and so you can make sounds. How did he pray? Did he pray? Yes. It does, that mana, the word, I, the reason I said it uh, and, and said the actual word is because it's going to come back. Uh, in chapter four, it'll say mana, mana, mana three times back to back. And that's the part that says that God appoints a plant, God appoints a worm, and God appoints a wind. Yes. Okay, I love rabbit trails.
No, that one is stool. Uh, that's the strange word I talked about. That's the first stool. Hebrew word stool means to, to hurl something. Yeah. And it's the whole sequence of hurling that happens because God initiates the first hurl. Right? So God duels a wind and then they start hurling their cargo and then eventually it'll lead to the hurling of Jonah. Right? But, th- but this uh, mana is a point in a very controlled way. So scholars will talk about how this word emphasizes sovereignty of God. When God appoints a fish, the fish does it. When God appoints a worm, a wind, a plant, everything under God's sovereignty and control. The only person, only thing in the story that does not respond to God, Jonah. (laughs) The one true prophet of the Lord, right? The one person that you expect to be at the ready to obey God is the one doing the opposite consistently. So uh, it's a very telling uh, word for mana, 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 amar. God speaks to Jonah. Jonah says, no, I'm not interested. Yes, sir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm assuming that. Let's say he actually did have air, oxygen to breathe. I, I guess what I'm asking is, what did he say? Did he say these words? Uh, it says, and Jonah prayed from the belly of the fish to his God. And he said, that's how my, uh, verse three begins and my verse three is your verse two, right? Uh, verse three begins with one word, va'omer, and he said. And then it has got a poem. It's, poet, it's poetry. Why would you say it might be after the fact? Because he says here, um, from the, I called for help, and you listen. It's in the past tense. Uh-huh. And, and you, you, you. Although, uh, we're going we're gonna to read uh, the text in a minute. And we're going to read it twice, by the way. Each verse twice, and there's a reason for that. Most people think this this poem uh, was probably a later addition to this story. It's a great addition to the story, but it's also beautiful poetry. Even if there is enough oxygen in, in the belly of the fish to pray, when's the last time in distress, especially, think about it, you're in the belly of a fish. What beautiful poetry will come out of your mouth? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And then have the sense afterwards to write it down. Because uh, who was there in the belly of the fish besides Jonah? Well, Jonah. So if this is what he said, the only source would have been Jonah. So he would have had to have written it down. Now again, uh, I said last time, is this a historical historically rooted story, who knows? Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. But at least in the story, we've got poetry coming out of someone's mouth. Yes, sir? No, um, 
Uh-oh. I'm not sure how I see the point with a prayer and what Jonah is saying. Jonah was asked to go to the Hades Right. That's true. Right, so that explains why Jonah flees, right? In chapter one, when God says, go preach against Nineveh, their sin is so great, it has come up before me, it's come to my face, and I can't ignore it anymore, so go. So Jonah flees. And in chapter four, we get why Jonah fled, by the way. Jonah will say, this is why I fled. We'll, we'll get to that. But here in the prayer, you get poetry. Uh, I think of Shakespeare, and people walk, go around like speaking in beautiful poetry to each other. <laughs> like, who does that? <laughs> who, who, who goes around? Even like their own thoughts, their own monologues, their soliloquies are beautiful poetry. So if you think of Hamlet's soliloquy, for example, the to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die, to sleep no more. And by sleep to say when the heartaches and a thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be waste. Who talks like that? <laughs> Nobody. We have it here in Jonah 2, something equivalent to this beautiful poetry. And people don't walk around speaking in poetry. We find that in, J in Job, the book of Job, now there's lots of debates among more conservative circles, is Job a historical figure or not? Well, whatever that means, the, p the conversation that Job has with his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, uh, poetry, beautiful poetry. People just don't sit and talk in poetry to each other, right? So it would have to be either written down later by Jonah if it's historical. If it's not, someone found a song or wrote a song that says, you know, this will serve a great literary purpose for this book. I get this question all the time. I, I mentioned this last time. I mentioned, uh, students ask me about some reality behind a story. So they ask me things like I mentioned last time. Who did Cain and Abel marry? Uh, they have questions like that. And I usually use the example of uh, Snow White. Even if you say Snow White actually happened, okay? Pretend it actually happened. You can ask two questions of the dwarves Snow and the seven dwarves. You could ask the one question that really means two things. Why are they dwarves? If you're thinking of the reality behind the story, you're asking, are they genetically 
deformed? Do they have dwarfism? Aren't they different species of people? Are they human? That's the question you're asking, right? Why are they dwarves? That's the reality question. The literary question you could ask, why are they dwarves? Well, maybe because in comparison to the power of this queen and empress, these little people, you see, now that I'm, sorry, I'm, now I'm starting to ask, answer the question in a way that the author might have envisioned it as the story is being told. So one's in what we call an ontological question or reality-based question. One's a literary question. And usually, this one we can't access. We don't, we'll never know why they were dwarves because the author never told us if there's different species, if there's dwarfism, whatever, right? We don't. We can start to answer this question what purpose does it serve? And that's the question I want to ask you. What purpose would a song in the middle of this story serve? So that, now we're going to read this text because it's fascinating just to, just to hear Jonah. Because now we have to picture Jonah saying this because the author wants us to picture Jonah saying this. It says, and then Jonah said from the belly of the fish. So picture Jonah saying these words, Okay. And then ask yourself, if we took out chapter two and just went straight from the belly of the fish, the spitting out, and to Nineveh, what would we lose in the story? What literary purpose does it serve? So let's read uh, the text. And usually I do this in, in uh, can I treat you like college students for the next 15 minutes? <laughs> All right, I'm gonna divide you right here, right down this line. This half, and then that half, all right? You're team A, team B. Team A believes that Jonah is not repenting, okay? Jonah is not at all repenting at all, not even the slightest. And I want you to read it with that lens in mind, okay? Pretend that you actually believe this to be true. And then on team B, read it with the eyes of, oh, finally, he's really, truly repenting. What a beautiful repentant song. Okay? So that's why we're going to read it twice. Read it once, and someone from this group defend why you think you're right, and someone from this group think, defend why you're right. Okay? All right, let's read the, the first uh, part there. And he said, I cried out from my distress to Yahweh, and he answered me. From the womb of Sheol, from the baton of Sheol, I cried for help, and you heard my voice. All right, this side. Does it sound like repenting? No. <laughs> Why not? Anyone have? Does this sound like repenting? You don't believe so, so please tell me why you might, might think that. Sorry? You could read it that way, right? I cried out for my distress. But then what about this other part? You answered me. Threw me in the water. Threw me in the water. You answered me by trying to kill me. Okay, what about the second part? From the belly of Sheol, I cried out, and you heard my voice. 
<laughs> you left me there. Um, what? He's in the belly of the fish right now, okay? So, yes. You heard my voice. And by the way, I, the reason I translated that literally, koli, kol is voice, sounds that vocal cords make. Uh, there's sounds and there's voices in the Hebrew. Anything that a vocal cord makes is a voice, including animals. Animals can have voices, those sheep have coals. Uh, but like, this, this is not a coal, but you heard my voice, uh, 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 is a voice. You heard my voice. There are translations that'll render this another way. Um, the translation of the word Lord there that you gave us was to the ultimate highest power, Yahweh. So to me, that says he's calling out to is that correct? Right it's the other way. Yahweh is this intimate name. Uh, I, I, the, the other example I use is a covenant name. Yahweh is a covenant name. I only have one covenant that I've made in my life. It's my wife. And my wife has a name for me that only she uses. It's babe. <laughs> she calls me babe. Nobody else in the whole world calls me babe except for her. Uh, yes, as intimate as I want to be with my students, they can't call me babe. So, babe is her name for me. It's a covenant name. So, that, that's another illustration I use because Yahweh is a very, very intimate covenantal name. So, it's, it's the Elohim that's majestic and glorious and transcendent. It's the professor, the, the title. Okay, let's talk. Let's read it again. Okay, we're going to read it a second time, this side. I cried out from my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. From the belly of, from the womb of Sheol, I cried for help, and you heard my voice. He allowed him to do penance. Sorry? He allowed him to do penance. Penance, so now the belly of the fish could be penance. Why else would you interpret this to mean that he's repenting? God listens. He must believe. God listens. Yeah, so Jonah must have repented since God is listening to his voice. Huh. Okay. I read it one way, it sounds one way. I read it another way, it sounds another way, doesn't it? Guess what? The most debated issue is among biblical scholars about the nature of chapter 2. What's the question that they're trying to answer? Is, yeah, is Jonah repenting or not? How do you read this thing? Because uh, you could read it, because kara, remember I said kara? I, that's, the word I, that's the other word I taught you. Uh, we got Yahweh, we had gadol, gadol, uh, let me write this, uh, uh, kara, Karah is to cry out. We first saw this when God says to, to Jonah, go cry out against Nineveh. When Jonah's asleep and the sailor, head sailor comes to Jonah, the head sailor tells, tells Jonah, Karah to your God, who knows? He doesn't, does he? But finally he says, Karati, I cried out. To whom? 
Yahweh. Should he be crying out to Yahweh? The object of this verb was Nineveh. Now here he is, crying out to Yahweh. Interesting, isn't it? I cried out, finally. Well, to Yahweh. You need to hear my voice. So if you're in the belly of the fish, what does it mean that God heard? Because he's not sped out yet, right? So we have to imagine Jonah saying this in the belly of the fish. What does he mean that God heard? What do you think? God's everywhere, but what has he listened to? What, what has he heard? What's happened? He didn't die, he didn't die yet. Uh, as we read the rest of this chapter, we'll see this over and over. I'm going, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Oh, I'm not dead. <laughs> Let's keep going. Verse four. You threw me. Shalach uh, there is through. It's different from tool, cast, hurl. You threw me to the deep, to the heart. Levav means literally the heart of the, si- of the sea. And streams. Nahar means river normally, uh, but this doesn't make sense to translate that literally to river. So he's probably some sort of current. Streams or currents have surrounded me. All of your billows and all of your breakers, they're synonymous of ocean waves. Over me they crossed, or crossed over. This side, why is he not repenting from this text? <laughs> okay. What else? Yes. He's going down to the deep, to the heart of the ocean. His descent began to Joppa. He went down to Joppa, goes down to the ship, goes down below the ship's uh, belly. And then now he's in the belly of the fish. He's down. But he's talking about what now? He's in, now, so basically you have to picture this. He's in the belly of the fish pr- praying, but what he's talking about is his past. You threw me into the ocean. By the way, who did that? The sailors, right? So if you're on this side, you could argue that Jonah is blaming God. You threw me into the deep, into the heart of the ocean. And what happened? All of your billows and your breakers. Do you have that in your translation? Some sort of your? So the stuff that you sent, you sent these things. The your there is a a pronoun that is possessive. You sent these waves over me. I know, he did, didn't he? (laughs) Yeah, I know. that's, that's, That's a challenge. He says, okay, it's my fault, throw me. But is he saying, it's my fault, I've sinned, I deserve punishment? Or is he saying, let me just die? Do you have a comment or question? 
Yeah, I like that. How about, how about this? Uh, let's read it again, okay? Uh, word verse four, uh, verse, uh, let's see, four is? Three. Three, three. okay. Uh, you threw me to the deep, to the heart of the ocean. Streams, uh, I'm sorry, those currents, ocean's currents have, have encircled me. And all of your billows and your breakers passed over me. How do you see that as repentance? Mm-hmm. Um, yet I will look again towards the holy, holy temple. temple, right? So he's saying, you me, yeah. Me yeah. So he could be saying, "Yeah, you're punishing me, and that is right to do so." Or you could, he could be saying, "You're punishing me, and I don't deserve this." <laughs> you see the implication? The denotation is the same, but the connotation is different, isn't it? Uh, let's let's keep reading. Oh, verse five, uh, I'm sorry, uh, four. But I said, I've been banished from before your eyes, but I will again gaze to your holy temple. Hmm, that sounds more like repenting. What does team A have to say about that? Oh, the very beginning? It says, how shall I look again? As opposed to, I see. I shall, which seems like I Yeah, that one's a little tricky because the Hebrew word that I'm translating is this word, ach. Uh, but remember the, how the vowel points were added later? Some manuscripts actually have these points, which would make it ach. Ach is but. Ech is how. So this one is a challenge beyond just the translation. Now we're comparing manuscripts. Going, it's just like in Shakespeare at the end of the soliloquy, uh, Hamlet says, thus enterprises of great pitch and moment is thus sickly to with a pale cast of thought. Some manuscripts don't say pitch and moment, it says pith and moment. Which is it, is it pitch or is it pith? So now we're not trying to interpret, we're trying to figure out which one Shakespeare, Shakespeare might have written. That's, so, that's called textual criticism. So this, this now leaves the whole translation behind into comparing manuscripts. Is it, it's, is it ach or is it ech? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> um, now the reason I translate it as ach is because I've already done the textual critical work and I think the evidence is slightly to the ach favor instead of the ech. But I don't think it changes too much. Whether you say, how can I, or but I will, it, it, still, it does change the, the, the nuance a bit. But the thing is, he still wants to look at the temple, right? That's the thrust. I'm going to, or how can I? Either way, I want to look at the temple of God, the holy temple. Great, great observation, though. Yeah. Yet, (laughs) 
Yeah, ech or eich, yeah. Uh, here's the other thing. It, the holy temple, the temple of ho- your holiness is a, is a literal translation there. Temple, your holiness. Uh, what is that? What is that? What, what is the temple that's holy for, for Jonah? Sorry? In Jerusalem, right? So if I were on this team, I might say, I, I drew this really poorly last time, and I can't really do a, a better job. <laughs> so here is Egypt. Here is Israel. Here are the Hachusa Mountains. Uh, the mountains turn to the two rivers, turn into the great, uh, the Persian Gulf. (laughs) I'm not an artist. I can't draw maps. Um, And we said Nineveh is over here. Right? Where is Jerusalem? You could be arguing, I'm not going to Nineveh. (laughs) I'm still not going to go. You know where I'm going? Jerusalem. I'm going back home. But if you're on this side, how would you make, if I presented that argument to you, he wants to go to Jerusalem again. He's not going to Nineveh over here. He's somewhere out in this ocean and he's saying, I'm going back to Jerusalem. How would you counter my argument? Uh, the, the statement was that didn't God reside in, God was in, the temple. in the temple? So this represents God, right? I am looking to you, God. Uh, so in other words, it's not about the temple. It's about what the temple represents. I will look toward you for help. Or... Is the holy temple Jerusalem? Is he thinking about the holy temple of God above the heavens? See, you could make that case. Uh, Let's keep reading. We're going to run out of time. Um, Verse of, the the next verse, I'm sorry. Oh, wait, Uh, verse five, verse uh, verse, uh, four. It, the, there's an emphatic statement there in Hebrew uh, that you can't really see uh, easily in English. Hebrew has f- persons included in the verb, kind of like Spanish or French or other Latin-based. You don't have to say the word I or you in many languages if the verb contains that conjugation for that verb. Do you understand? The pronoun is included in the verb. Uh, Hebrew does the same thing. So the word amarti, amar is to say, amarti is I said. But then right before Amarti, there's the word v'ani. It means I. And then there's an emphatic vav in front of that. So he's basically saying, but I said. Remember there's small buts and big buts in Hebrew? Here's a huge but. There's a huge contrast. Okay, this is what's happening around me, but I said. Interesting, is that? That changes, that seems like this team would win. The focus is not on God, the focus is on himself. Uh, let's keep reading, verse six. Ah, I'm sorry, uh, five. Um, the water, 
enveloped, a fufuni is a encompass, surrounded, we've had surround before, it's a different word, completely uh, enveloped my neck. <laughs> it's literally, but uh, most of your translations will say either soul or life, because nefesh literally is right here. This is your nefesh. Uh, this is a thing we're to love God with. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, levav, which is the, in Hebrew the faculty of intellect. This is what you memorize with. This is what you think with. Not, in the Hebrew world view, this is not a seat of passion. The seat of passion is down here in your gut. So like, you can feel deep emotions with your livers and kidneys, but you think with your heart. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, and then all your nefesh, all your soul, all your might, all your life, and then all of your might. So it, it, there are three body kind of languages there. Uh, and the nefesh is what's, what's happening. So you can translate this more literally and said, say, all the waters, I'm here, going. <laughs> or I'm about to die. Nefesh, because it's life. And the, uh, and the deep surrounds me, surrounded me. Uh, by the way, I, I keep going back and forth between present tense and, and past tense in English. Hebrew does not have tenses. Uh, it has just what's called an aspect. So it's in the perfect form or imperfect form. Uh, and it, uh, one idea is that it's completed. The other, the other idea is it's ongoing. Uh, but it can happen both in the future or in, or in the past. So you can have an idea that's ongoing in the past, or you can have an idea that's completed in the future, like the prophecies. That when the prophets talk about the future, they use the perfect tense, because it's done. When God says it's done, it's done. It's in the perfect tense. So that's why I keep switching back and forth. I apologize for that. Uh, so, and then, suf, re, uh, reeds or seaweed or some sort of plant thing is bound to my head. We have a triple uh, paralleling uh, idea there. Hebrew poetry, unlike English poetry, does not have rhyme or meter or rhythm. Hebrew poetry uses what's called parallelism. It'll, it'll state one thing, it'll say the same thing twice in the next line. And, and I'm sure you might have noticed that. I cried out for help uh, and you answered me. Uh, I cried for help from my distress and you answered me. And I cried from the belly of the Sheol and you delivered me and you, and you heard my voice. So they're kind of paralleling ideas. That's what Hebrew does in poetry. And here we have a tri triple line. Instead of just two lines, you've got three, three lines saying the same thing. The waters have surrounded me so that I might die. The deep has surrounded me or, or, or around me. And the, some sort of plant or reed or seaweed is wrapped around my head. We're still envisioning Jonah talking about when he was in the water, aren't we? The next verse. To the outskirts, literally, of the mountains I descended. What? How, how do you, your translations render that part? Something about the mountains, right? The roots of mountains? Is that common? So if you think of one mountain like that, uh, the word is katsev, which is literally like the outside of something. Out, so, so it could be the outskirts of a town. It could be outside of a skirt. It could be outside your limbs, extremities. Um, so you're think, they're thinking of this part right here. 
So the outside of the mountain. Here is the heart of the mountain, the center, right? If you're looking at it from top down. And here is the outside. And of course, the outside would be the lowest part of the mountains. So if you have many of them, this outside would be the deepest part. And that's why some translation will say to the bottoms of, to the roots of mountains. But what the heck? <laughs> I thought he was in the ocean. What, what mountains? What's he talking about? What is the poet saying? And then it'll say right afterwards, uh, the earth, the earth and its, and its bars is, is, keep, has keep, is keeping me forever. Earth and its bars? What is all this? All right, there are two possibilities. One possibility is the water level is here. <laughs> so the, the, the whatever terrain that you get under the, under the water, the lowest part of that terrain is where he was. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that this is all metaphorical. The earth, the mountains, the pit. So he's talking about death, a metaphorical reference to death. Um, Then there's this interesting turn of phrase there um, after that. Uh, let's, let's skip down to verse seven. Seven, yes. As my life, my throat, my nephesh, as my nephesh was fainting upon me, Yahweh, I remembered. He's about to die, and this is when he recalls to mind, oh, about, oh, Yahweh, that's right. I remembered. And to, to him, or to you, uh, my prayer went. And then again, you get this phrase, to the holy temple. Verse 9. Uh, uh, verse eight, sorry, verse eight, I think. Those who guard empty emptiness, vain emptiness, uh, idols, those who guard or keep, observe, vain idols, their chesed, chasadam, their chesed, they abandon, they forsake. Uh, this is a beautiful Hebrew word that sounds ugly. Chesed. Let's all say that together. Ready? One, two, three. Chesed. It's not chesed. Chesed. This is the one word that I, I teach in every class that I teach, no matter what class I'm teaching. It's because it's the one word that English cannot ever translate into a, a, even a sentence. This is an untranslatable word. And you know, if you, know if, most, if you speak more than one language, you know that there are some words that don't cross from one language to another. In Korean, there's a word, for, there's a word called kunyang. Impossible to translate into English, I've tried. Uh, chesed is almost impossible to translate. And so some translations try really hard by combining two words into one. Love, kindness, loving kindness. 
still doesn't capture it. Chesed is this idea. Faithfulness. Kindness. Loyalty. Gentleness. Compassion. How do you put all that into one? And I haven't even gotten through the idea that chesed is from, the, from someone who has the ability to give it to someone who doesn't. Chesed flows down. So when Boaz says, for example, to Ruth, your chesed is greater than your previous chesed, Boaz is elevating Ruth. It's always used of God in the Bible, chesed, except for a few exceptions when other people are being elevated. So here is the chesed, this compassion, love, faithfulness, gentleness, grace, all of that into one word. Those who worship vain idols forsake this. How, how would you interpret this? What does that mean? Is Jonah talking about himself? Who's, who's Jonah talking about? Nineveh. Sorry? Nineveh. Nineveh. If jo- okay, you're on the wrong side. You're on the side. <laughs> <laughs> if Jonah is talking about Nineveh, then he's saying, they don't deserve your chesed because they worship idols, so why should I go to Nineveh? But if he's talking about himself, he's saying, oh, I worship the true God. I don't worship idols. I worship you, Yahweh, and you show chesed to us. You see the, it depends on who, you're, who he's talking about that the statement changes. And then uh, the, the last verse of that poem, um, and I, in a voice of thanksgiving, again, there's an emphatic I, and I, in a voice of thanksgiving, will make sacrifices. And that which I have, I have vowed, I will keep for salvation or deliverance or rescue belongs to the Lord. If you take salvation to be some spiritual or some grand idea, then this side wins. If salvation there, Yeshua, Yeshua is, is just deliverance, rescue. Oh, I was in the water, I'm gonna die. And now I'm in the belly of the fish, whew, I'm not dead. Then this side wins. But then the other part, the part that says, and, uh, that, that says I will make sacrifices, and that I, which I vowed I will vow, what does that sound like? Sacrifices and vows. Repentance, Repentance on this side. <laughs> yes? That's what I'll do. But it's also a reference back to the end of chapter one when the sailors made vows and made sacrifices. So he's saying, all right, I'm committed to you now. Now, here's a huge, uh, we're out of time, but let's just, the point that this, this thing makes, this, this song makes, is very difficult. And scholars have fought over this. He's repenting. No, he's not. And I think they're missing the point. You're supposed to wonder. The song pauses long enough to, one, to cause us to wonder, is he repenting or is he not? Is he saying, oh, those Ninevites don't deserve your chesed? Or is he saying, I'm, I'm going to worship you, the true God, and not the idols because you're faithful. We're supposed to wonder. 
So the story pauses long enough to create this wonder in us. Yeah, there's an inner conflict too. Um, I was sitting at my, my son's uh, piano lesson outside and I was kind of thinking about our lesson today and I had this thought that I never really had. So I, I pulled out my phone, on my, on my, uh, I've got a Hebrew Bible on here and I went and I noted, I, the, I went into my notes and I wrote down, uh, you can't see it, but I wrote down every time in Jonah, the first person pronoun is re- referred to in this chapter. So there are eight verses in this song. Five times in verse two, three times in verse three, four times in verse four, three times in five, four in six, four in seven, none in eight, and then four in nine. If you count them all together, in eight verses, you have 27 references to himself. <laughs> I, had a, I had an inkling, so I followed through on it. Thank goodness I have, isn't it wonderful that you can carry a Bible and Hebrew Bibles in your, in your pocket? Um, I, just, I had this gut feeling like, oh, I wonder if there are just unusual references to himself, and surely 27 is quite unusual. So even though it sounds a lot like I'm repenting and I'm doing all this, there is a side that says, me, 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 oh, me, me, oh, me, poor me. I'm suffering, I'm in distress, I'm in agony, I'm gonna die. And then there are parts, though, that says, but you have answered me. You have rescued me. On the other hand, the way he is could represent all of them. So he's talking about himself. Yeah. Who is like men of a people, and then you'll forgive them as well as me. Yeah, uh, the comment, comment is that he re- Jonah represents really humanity, and that's very true. In fact, that's how we are to read this book. Jonah becomes a lens through which the, uh, the narrator wants us to engage the story. So we look through Jonah and then we see what's going on. Uh, he is really our protagonist. Oh, he's all we have, right? He's our main character. So we have to look through Jonah to see what's going on. And it's not pretty the way we look at things. So we now we need to be unlike Jonah at the end of the book. Yes, we're out of time. Thank you so much for coming. I will see you next week. And we got Jonah 3, which is amazing. (laughs) Thank you.